Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabiola, clinical professor of medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. COVID-19 has permeated every facet of our lives. Job lost, social and family interactions severely restricted, health suffered, and lives lost. We as a nation have to pivot quickly to cope with the pandemic, and the pedagogical process is not immune to this new shift. As we struggle as parents to work at home with our children as they navigate this sudden shift in schooling, appreciation for teachers has skyrocketed. I could not think of any moment in history that education became so central in our social, political, economic prosperity and stability. How long will this pandemic last is uncertain. An even more important question is its impact to our lives. We are still learning about the virus. As physicians and scientists, we know that masking and physical distancing are key in preventing the viral transmission and spread. Doctors, nurses, advanced practice providers, medical and nursing assistants are all out there in the front lines combating the virus and taking care of our precious patients. While scientists are working on the treatment and the creation of the vaccine, educators are also shifting their gears in training our future doctors and scientists. As educators, we then have to quickly innovate on how we can achieve all these competencies we expect of students while ensuring safety for our patients and students alike. The training of future doctors is perhaps regarded as the most rigorous preparation out there. It involves phenomenal preparation as early as high school, sacrifices, commitment, emotional, psychological, and social and physical presence. That physical space is now restricted and threatened. Today, Dr. Neil Gesundheit will take us to his physical space at Stanford as the Senior Associate Dean for Medical Education. He is a professor of medicine, an internist, practicing endocrinologist, and an educator. He oversees the educational programs for medical students, physician assistant master's program, residents and fellows, as well as the Stanford Continuing Medical Education. He will discuss how we are training our future doctors. Welcome, Neil, and thank you for joining on this important topic, training our future doctors. Thank you, Julia. So, Neil, please tell us what inspired you to be in medical education? I enjoyed during my training, not only learning about medicine, but working with others and especially newer entrants to the field of medicine and, and let, learning them, seeing them grow and watching them become competent doctors. I was um, training here at Stanford. And then during my time here, I had a chance to be a chief resident actually at Valley Medical Center or our county hospital in San Jose. And it was really a year where I was involved in teaching students, residents, seeing a lot of patients and always uh, being involved in patient care as an educator as well to make sure patients understand their conditions. And I, I came to see education as being a vital part of 
not only training doctors, but delivering excellent health care, being a great educator to your patients, explaining clearly the conditions they have and the next steps in their care. So it, I caught the fever, if you will, of education and always made that a big part of what I did. When I was a fellow, I was at the NIH, but I helped train people in the lab and in clinical care. And I wanted very much to get back into mainstream medicine at Stanford and be involved in education. And about actually about 20 years ago, the school was revising its curriculum and I applied for the job. I thought this is something I'd love to do. I'd love to work with faculty and students and staff and look at what's the optimal way to reshape a curriculum. And I was so lucky that after having been a resident here, but having been away, that I was able to get back into the game and come back here as an educator with my principal goal to create a wonderful, engaging, dynamic curriculum that would help train doctors both in research with research focus, but also with care focus, make sure, making sure that every graduate of Stanford is an outstanding clinician and understands the patient interface and how to deliver great care. And to me, that is the most noble thing you can do in medicine is deliver care, but also be involved in training students and residents to be the next generation of caregivers. So I continue to embrace that as a mission. And I'm trying my best, as we all are, as you are as well. I know your background is keenly involved with education and giving to the next generation. But I, I think it's a great, great thing to do. I've been very fortunate to be able to do that in this last next chapter of my life. Well, I am, Long answer to this yeah, I, I am one of those mentees and I really, truly enjoyed like part of the process on being educated and learning from you and learning from all our students. So I want to take you back. I know a few years ago, we just transformed the educational process in medicine at Stanford. And then now we have to revitalize that and re-innovate once again. And I know this is an ever-changing field. Take us back, Neil, in March, while we were scrambling in the front lines as doctors, our educators are, I'm sure, profusely also working in parallel, figuring out how to pivot as well. Could you take us back uh, what you guys were doing in March? Well, before the pandemic, we had a pre-clinical, pre-clerkship curriculum that was both an in-person one and one that we allowed students the freedom to, if they wanted to, to learn remotely, even before the pandemic. So there were students uh, who felt that the best modality for them would be to not go to class in person, but to watch videos after the class was given and use the videos as a way to learn. And then we did have some obligatory in-person classes, learning clinical skills, small group discussion, uh, clinical reasoning, for instance, that you participated in that we continue to do in person. So we had, even back before the pandemic, a mixture of activities. And we allowed a lot of our students who felt they could learn better remotely, we allowed them the freedom not to go to class and to learn in that way. So in a way, we at Stanford were well positioned for the pandemic because we had wonderful audiovisuals and, and ways of, of learning already established. Now, what happened in March is we quickly realized that we could not bring students together in lecture halls, that the lecture halls, because they brought in, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 people into a confined space indoors without good air circulation, would be a potential place where COVID and other viral illnesses could spread. 
at that point became a virtual curriculum. We took everything, and I, I would give tremendous credit to the faculty and to the IT support, the uh, information technology support that they received. We went completely to virtual. So for instance, small group meetings, we created Zoom rooms, typically of 10 to 12 students with a faculty member, and we would do clinical reasoning that way. And it's interesting because what faculty will say is, in the old format, it was hard to keep track of students exactly. But in Zoom, because each person occupies a Hollywood Square box symmetrically on the screen, just as symmetrically as the faculty member without any obvious power differential, you're sort of all in an equal box on the screen. In some ways, it made it better, a be- an easier way to keep track of what people are doing and thinking. Now, the thing you lose with Zoom is you don't get a chance to see how students are interacting with each other. You're all sort of interacting together, and one person is speaking so their Zoom box lights up. But you don't get a feeling for how people are interacting among each other very well. So it's definitely a trade-off. You lose things. But I would say overall that we've been pleased with how we can continue to provide a high-quality education using these online modalities. And we've used primarily Zoom as the way that we keep learning going with small group activities and even lectures. We'll have lectures where a faculty member will be the lecturer, but everyone is there in a a Zoom box online. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the faculty have done very well to adapt to that. I think they are getting good and have gotten pretty good at learning how to share their screen what some of our faculty are very good at is, is the ability to go to a website and activate, let's say, a video. And it's typically well-supported so they can look at lots of resources beyond the typical ones that they would use from a, a slideshow in a classroom. So I, I think it's actually worked out pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that you shared that because I've been, even during my time, which is ancient ago, I recall being in a big classroom where it should hold 200 and 300 students, and there will be two people present. One is recording, taping the lecture and writing notes, and one is supporting his or her friend, you know, while listening to this lecture. And it was a disappointment to the faculty who prepared the course for that day and see a couple of people attending the lectures. And as I recall also in our major lectures, we only probably have about 30% of students attending the lectures, and most of them are playing the video after the lecture had finished. So that is not new. What is new, I guess, are those hands-on experiences, like, for example, teaching physical exam to uh, students. How do we do that now, Neil? Well, that, that's, that hits on a very important area, and that is that there are some things that you cannot do remotely or not easily. And one example would be the physical exam, because there you really want to have the tactile, you know, the feeling and touching of the instruments and, and the patient and listening to how uh, heart sounds or breath sounds sound in the context of examining a patient. It's very hard to recreate virtually. So I I don't think we've been able to recreate that nearly as well or as well as we have the didactics, the fact-based teaching. And what we will be doing is giving some introductory teaching online, but then having either now or later makeup sessions to make sure that we reinforce 
those principles of the physical exam in person. And so some of our students actually have fallen behind because of the modality of teaching. But we have plans to do basically a, a boot camp type of catch-up activity later to make sure we have the in-person tactile experience that I think students need to really learn those skills. Mm-hmm. Now, what we have done to try to fill the gap a little bit is we've told students, let me show you how the exam is done using virtual media. And then said, now we want you to find a friend or a loved one that you can examine and put them on camera. And we will have a faculty member watch you examining someone to give you tips on what you did right and what you did wrong. And that's sort of a hybrid. It's saying, no, you need a real live person, but we don't have to be in a classroom watching you directly over your shoulder. We can have you do that online with a live person. And we can watch you and say, no, 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 you know, I see you're putting the stethoscope in the middle of the right side of the chest, and you should be in the second intercostal space on the right of the sternum, optimally, to listen to the aortic heart sounds. We can give feedback like that. I don't think it's a substitute to being there in person and saying, you know, you should move it here and showing the student where to put it. But it's not bad. And we're doing some of that live learning with friend or family member. And totally, as a faculty member, we're doing some of that, but it's very hard to substitute fully for live instruction. Again, everyone, pivoting is a great word. Everyone adapting to the new circumstances, but it's not, in in many cases, a 100% substitute. And it will require, once we're able to move around more freely, to do some makeup time for student learning later. Certainly innovation and action, Neil. Uh, yeah, I salute you guys for being able to rapidly shift the way we do things. I know even in the clinical arena, we have to create the way we will examine the patient remotely. I would have to ask the patient, turn around, bend over, and then even trying to merge technology to this, like, you know, have the idea how to pivot also their camera while pivoting their body to show us where the lesion is or where something hurts. I know it's such a challenge. Now, the question I want to ask, what are the students saying? What are we hearing from our students? Well, it's interesting. I don't think that that I've heard very many complaints about the caliber of education. You would think with all these changes that we might hear students saying, I'm not learning well, I'm not learning effectively, or that the tests we give them, we would have scores that are going down. We haven't seen that. Our students haven't complained about the modality of teaching. Our scores are staying at a high level. Our pass rates in courses with rigorous exams are staying very high. But I think what is changing is that the students' mental health, I think, has been strained by this. And you, you know, as well as anyone involved in healthcare, that a big part of becoming a doctor is not just learning the knowledge of medicine, it's learning the attitudes It's building a community of learners. It's building a community of young doctors and having the camaraderie of your friends and colleagues as you go through med school. And a lot of our students, the complaint isn't that I'm not learning effectively. It's I feel lonely. I feel isolated. I feel like I want to get together with colleagues in the classroom and outside of the classroom. And because of the threat of the pandemic, as you may know, we have a compact that our students must sign that's very strict. And it says you cannot meet casually with classmates. You can form a social pod with up to eight students. That's the rule at Stanford, up to eight students, mostly in your living 
headquarters. But if you have a colleague that you have interacted with in the classroom that might be a study partner, you cannot meet with them easily. You can meet with them as, if it's for study and you you have a formal academic reason to meet with them. But let's say you and I want to meet without a, an academic purpose as a classmate to get to know each other. We can do that by Zoom. We cannot do that in person, in theory. And so like if I together with someone to talk about the experience of med school, but I'm not talking about specifics about my coursework, I'm not allowed to do that. And it's creating this climate of isolation because of the need to keep everyone safe. And I think that's been the biggest challenge. What could we do? Like, could we do frequent testing, random testing for our students, like weekly testing? Would that change the playing field? Well, we do weekly testing. We require weekly testing of the preclinical students. But the worry, because you know how the test works, is if I, on Monday, test negative, I still could have been exposed and by midweek be positive and be asymptomatic and be shedding virus and spreading COVID. So it's almost like you have to go to daily testing to keep everyone safe. And we don't have the resources to do that. You know, and even our athletes, I don't know if you know the story, our athletes are getting virtually daily testing. And the outbreaks that have occurred, the very few outbreaks on Stanford campus have been among athletes, among varsity athletes. So it's just very, very hard to keep people safe because of the way the virus conducts itself and spreads itself very, you know, very uh, surreptitiously. It's one of, it's, it's got all these features of viral spread that uh, we haven't encountered before. We have the series of virus. And so everyone agrees from a public health standpoint that the best way to keep the pandemic under control is to minimize contact, distance, test frequently, but not, that's not the full answer. Yeah, yeah. I, I wish I had the answer. I think the ultimate answer is to develop a vaccine along with testing and then resume things more like normal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So for example, Neil, our first year students who are new to Stanford, how do we support them? Like, tell us about the Educators for Care, which is so popular at Stanford, where we have a cadre of dedicated, committed faculty uh, supporting our students from the very first day of medical school. How is that working now with all this distancing? Well, I think the Educators for Care, which you're right, it's a model that we have here, and you were one of the inaugural Educators for Care that um, allows students to meet with the faculty in groups of five to six students per faculty member. And that's been terrific as a way to get our students to feel connected because those groups continue to meet mostly virtually, but they still do have an ability to get together once in a while. With masks on, it's not as informal and friendly as it used to be. And, but I think it's been great to get students to feel connected. The problem is if you want to get two or three groups of educators for care together, that starts to come into conflict with university policy. It says you cannot gather that way. And, and, it, and there are limits to number of people that can be brought together. So five to six people is okay. Once you get above eight or so, not good to do. Eight to 10 is kind of the limit. So it's good. It's a great asset we have here to get people to connect, but it doesn't allow them to connect in more than a very small group. Mm-hmm. So while we leave the preclinical years, Neil, how about the clerkships? I remember way back in March that all clerkships were suspended 
as we are trying to figure out how we will cope with the a surge of the patients coming in and the panic at that time, like how the disease is spread and a lot of the unknowns and lack of PPEs and trying to figure out how to use PPEs and who should have them. Take us to when, like how it impacted the clerkships at that time, the clinical rotations, the away rotations, and how did we deal with that as educators? Yes, there have been lots and lots of changes. Initially, we didn't have enough PPE, and we also didn't understand uh, exactly what the mechanism of spread of the virus was. So we thought we, we weren't keeping students safe, and we pulled everyone from clerkships. And that wasn't just Stanford. That was done throughout the country, pretty much. After about three months, we realized that we, we were able to gather more PPE, And we realized that um, with proper PPE, the transmittal rates within our system were very low, almost zero. So we felt very comfortable at that point to put students back in. But at the same time, the current rule and the rule then was that students could not be seeing patients who were known to be COVID positive. We felt that you had had to have a policy where, where only those people who needed to be there would be there caring for those patients because of the higher risk. But otherwise, students have been able to care for all others, other patients, including now patients who are at risk or, or that are unknown but might be harboring COVID. If they are unknown but undergoing testing, then so long as students are using PPE, they are allowed to care for those patients right now. So uh, things have gone more or less back to a more inclusive environment for students to be included in the care of patients. And they've resumed clerkship starting in late June at Stanford. Mm-hmm. Now, the way clerkships are different, though, is there's a lot more remote telemedicine, telehealth. So if I'm in the outpatient clerkship, I am likely working with a provider like you as an adjunct to that provider providing telehealth. It's a very different experience. I think it's a good one for students to learn from, but it's not exactly the way it used to be, where they would be involved with direct patient care. They are doing some direct patient care. They're doing a lot of telehealth for outpatient medicine as well. Yeah, like for example, at our patient, we will have sessions that are in person. So we really welcome students to be with us during those uh, now a little bit rare, you know, in-person visits. We fully transformed to telemedicine. So from like about maybe 2% before to like 80, 85% now uh, is mostly telemedicine. And it is, it is very challenging. How about your faculty? What are they saying? Well, I think they feel strained just by all the changes. You know, each one of these pivots requires emotional and physical energy. So I think they're, they're feeling somewhat strained. But I think everyone is grateful for the fact that we have ways to work and take care of patients despite some of the limitations. And some fields lend themselves to telehealth much better than others. So, you know, of course, surgery doesn't lend itself as well. But I was told by one of the surgeons that it was a man. He said he interviews patients by telehealth means and then often doesn't see them until the day of surgery, which means he has to do his pre-surgical physical exam right then and there and be prepared if something comes up during the physical exam to cancel the operation. But if nothing new comes up, nothing new surfaces during the physical exam, then they're ready to go. If let's say someone's doing a hernia repair, 
they, they by telemedicine know what it looks like. They sort of assume what it would be like on exam. If during the day of surgery, they find, oh, no, no, this is much more extensive than I am, they might have to cancel the case. But if it fits more or less with what they expected, the severity of the hernia to be, then they say, okay, that's what I thought it would be. We're doing the operation today. And so they've really done an amazing job of working with telehealth, yet being able to do things as as needed, like surgery that really requires in-person sessions. Yeah. So that, I think it's been an amazing transformation. Yeah, that will be even probably more challenging in patients where you would need to orchestrate a group of surgeons who will be collaborating with you. For example, I could think of lumpectomy versus simple mastectomy or needing plastic reconstruction. Sarah, how could you mobilize that without having seen the patient and assess the patient stage or size of the tumor? So that will be interesting. So in terms of other areas in medicine, for example, our advanced students who are doing away rotation to determine where they should go for residency, how is that affected by the pandemic? That's been affected uh, in a major way because, as you know, Many of our students in the last year of medical school do go away to do a rotation at another hospital, another healthcare system, in order to see what it's like. You know, you're committing to anywhere from three to seven years of your life to train somewhere. And it's hard to walk in the first day, never have, you know, be an employee there and be in training and never having set foot there. But that's what we're doing right now. We're trying to, because of the travel limitations, and the need for quarantine in many parts of the country, we are not allowing, it, nor are programs of hosting students for these visiting rotations. And then after that, they're doing interviews to get a job at a new system without having been there in person. So it's had a major effect. And I think what it's doing is it's uh, causing our students to do a lot of work behind the scenes, to speak with people in training at these sites to find out more what it's like behind the scenes before they commit to training at another institution. I also think it's going to lead to a lot of students deciding to train in their home institution because their home institution is one they know. It's one where the faculty know them. So it's less risky on both sides. It's less risky to the trainee to stay home. It's less risky to the faculty to say, we'll train one of our own students because it's less of a gamble than it is to take someone from another institution that we don't get to know as well because they didn't come to visit us uh, as much. Right. So it's really changed that a lot. I think it's going to lead to less intellectual exchange, less student exchange between schools and training programs, and more relying on, on the home institution to provide the training for someone in medical school. Do you think this, what we're doing now, will be the new way that uh, we will be doing medical education, you think? If we will reach that time that there will be another side of this pandemic, you think what we're doing now will be the way of the future of medical education? Well, I think that a lot of the changes we've made now have received a fairly positive or positive reception by students, by faculty, by patients. And they will stay, not, not, not all of them. There will be patients who say, as an example, boy, it was so scary to go to my surgery and to be prepped for surgery and to see the surgeon for the first time the day of my operation. 
And I, I think it would be for a minor type of surgery, not for the complex case that you described, but for something like a simple hernia repair, that might be the case. But there will be patients who say, I don't want that. I want to see my surgeon and get to know them because they're going to be, I need to trust them and I need, I need personal contact to do that. But for other things where the virtual scenario works quite well, I think it's going to stick. I'll give you one example um, for psychiatry. I've been told that some of the patients say, you know, I feel like I, I don't have to get in my car and drive and park. And when I meet with my psychiatrist, I feel quite a bit of intimacy with the virtual modality because I'm there one-on-one with them. I feel like I can tell them anything I want because I have the comfort of my home behind me that supports me than the discomfort of going to their home or their office. I'm more on an equal footing and I feel that I can relieve myself of my anxieties and tell them and disclose my personal issues more freely in this environment than I might be able to in person. So I think we're going to find ourselves that this pandemic will have transformed some of the things we do, some of the ways we teach that we find are equally effective online, Mm -hmm. some of the ways we see patients for some specialties. Mm -hmm. And even for the interview, we've had students, I think you know this from personal experience, that spend $10,000 going to visit programs. And if we can make it more the norm that you actually get to see a program virtually and only visit the ones that after the interview, you say, you know, I'm excited about that program. The interview got me excited. So now I'm going to go visit them in person, but I don't have to visit 10 or 12 programs, many of which I know that I'm not that interested in. So it'll be a more selective visit to a program than it was in the past, where if you're serious about a program, you had to visit every single one of them. So I think for everything we do, we're going to call through what we've been doing and decide that there are certain wonderful aspects and incorporate that into the new way we practice and learn medicine after the pandemic. That's my, you know, that's sort of looking for the silver cloud, silver lining to this dark cloud. And I think there is a silver lining that we're going to find when we're all done with this. Right. Tell me, what are the silver linings that we know now in terms of like how we had faced the pandemic the last, what, nine months? Nine months now? God, it's that. It's so fast. So what are some of those? What are, what would be our take-home points from what we are learning now in medical education? Well, I I think for some teaching activities that it is just as effective to do it online, that you can access more resources. I think you can do things. I'll, I'll, t- I'll give you another example. We used to, for the most part, when we gave a lecture, have the lecture speak for 45 to 50 minutes without interruption. And what we're learning with online learning is that it's more effective to sort of give 10-minute installments, if you will, of information, and then to open it up for student questioning after these 10-minute installments. And it's easier because then you can say, are there any questions? I, I can look in my chat room and people will put in or write up their questions, and we can break a one-hour lecture into maybe four or five 10-minute segments, followed by a couple of minutes of Q&A, questions and answers. And so we, I think, are learning that for our 21st century learners, that they appreciate and learn better with smaller installments or batches of information interspersed with question and answer than with a long 50-minute continuous modality of learning. 
And so that's something new that I think will be a silver lining for this pandemic. Mm -hmm. So in terms of uh, supporting our students, how are we supporting our students now in terms of their mental health? Well, that's interesting. I don't think we've done enough, at least at Stanford, to figure that one out. It may be that what we need to do is create more chat rooms and chat groups more routinely and get trained counselors to staff those. We, mm-hmm. we haven't done that. We've had the sort of faculty and others who are pretty good at that be available, but I'm not sure we're available enough to address some of the sense of isolation and, and loneliness that has happened with our learners. We have allowed, for instance, students who feel very isolated here to, to say, look, I'm going to learn remotely and not even live on campus. And I'll make up the sessions that are held live because we still have some live sessions, in-person sessions occurring, but we're giving students the option to say, look, if it's too stressful to be here in person and you feel very isolated, then go back to home, learn remotely. We'll keep track of the sessions that you missed. And when we are past the pandemic, we'll have you come back and make up those sessions in person. But if you feel it's very lonely and isolating to be here in person at Stanford, you can go back home to you know, New Orleans or Pittsburgh or Cincinnati, or Long Beach, and learn from home, and we'll make up those sessions you miss later, if it's better for your mental health to do that. And we've ha- we have right now about eight to 10 students each year who've taken us up on that option. That is interesting. That will be nice because they will be around their family and support system with better support structure until we figure it out, right? So, exactly. Um, and we, we can't do that with clerkships as easily. But in the pre-clerkship curriculum, we are offering that option right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, we're about the, the end here. Could we get a few pointers from you on how we should cope with this in terms of as educators and as students? Well, I think we have to think about the big picture. So from the point of view of educators, the big picture is that we need to train competent, caring physicians to take care of our patients especially at a time of pandemic, we need as many trainees or more as before. We can't let the pandemic dominate us and uh, force us to not train as many doctors. So we were actually very proud that last June, when we had our graduation, everyone who had hoped to graduate in 2020, in fact, did complete their degree, received their diploma, and went off to training in the residency on time. So the first star... The first star that we earn as a faculty is that we were able to train the trainees, get them out on time so they could be delivering health care competently. And that's the model for what we want to continue to do. So in first year, if we fall behind, we're going to work over the summer and catch everyone up. In second year, if we fall behind, we'll catch everyone up and put them into clerkships. And in clerkships, although we aren't learning exactly the way we learned before, We're going to make sure that they achieve all of their learning objectives using virtual means, using telehealth, doing catch-up in some way, so that we continue to have everyone who wants to graduate in June of 2021 or June of 2022 graduate on time. And they can be on the front lines of providing healthcare and the front lines of combating the pandemic. But I think everyone is going to have to realize that you meet the objectives in a new way. We're not lowering the bar. We're just saying we're keeping the bar at the same high level. We're providing you with a flexible pathway to get to that high level of achievement. And that's sort of our philosophy right now. We're providing flexibility, but not laxity. We're not lowering standards. 
we're keeping high standards, or we're finding flexible ways to get everyone there through these new ways to teach, new ways to learn, new ways to practice clinical medicine. And for our students? For our students, you have to be flexible. You have to be resilient. But keep in mind the noble cause that you're taking on. The noble cause is that you're becoming a healthcare giver and helping people who have illness and other distress. And that keep that in mind. You're making personal sacrifices to get there, but ultimately you're going out to be a, a caregiver and to help people who are in need. And I think that's what motivates you. Feel a little lonely? Say, well, I'm lonely, but the reason I'm suffering this loneliness is to get to the final goal of being out there to provide health care to others who, who need that help. Thank you so much, Neil, for all this enlightening and sharing your experience in your own physical space. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing fine. You know, I, I find like many people that the days blend together, that they become blurry. It's really a different lifestyle that we're all leading with COVID. But, you know, I'm trying to look at those positives as you are. You know, it's, it's a time you're kind of huddled at home and you can enjoy other things. And I, I, I feel like uh, most of our students are doing well and our faculty are adapting. So that makes me feel very good professionally about what we're doing. Yeah. Thank you so much, Neil, for what you're doing. And uh, it is always a pleasure to see you and share oh, with your you. expertise. Thank you so much. Well, thank, thank you. you. And for I know, Julieta, you, you always have projects about, and the goal of your projects is doing altruism, doing good things for other people. So I appreciate everything you've done here and elsewhere. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Goodbye. And thank okay. you for joining me. Okay. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends, rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Acast, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you on our next episode.